KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast. Would you do me a favor? When you're done listening, would you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast? We need your reviews to take us to the top. Thanks. Now let's get to it. This week, the focus is on the U.S. courts. Judge Amy Coney Barrett could be confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court in a matter of days. But she'll become one of hundreds of conservative judges appointed to the federal bench. Trump and the Republican Party have really taken their four years seriously. What's the immediate and long-term impact? And what can liberals do to fight back? What we really need to be looking for is an exit ramp from this road of escalating partisan tit-for-tat. The impact of politics on the judiciary. We take a look. Then 100,000 hospitality jobs have been lost in the city since March. That really has created a sense of loss. Visit Philadelphia talks about the city's recovery plan post-recession. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the federal court system. Over the past four years, President Donald Trump and the Republican-controlled Senate has reshaped the judiciary, appointing more than 200 judges to the federal bench, including 53 on circuit courts of appeals. And now they're finalizing their third appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court. So what are the politics of the bench? We have two guests. We'll start with UPenn law professor and constitutional law expert Kermit Roosevelt. Kim? Welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks. Glad to be here. You watched the Judiciary Committee hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett, I'm sure. Give us your take on what we saw over the last few days. Well, over the past couple of decades, the hearings have sort of degenerated. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that they ever provided particularly useful information, but what we're getting now is really a very scripted performance where the nominee tries to say as little as possible and the senators who support her are trying just to give her the opportunity to look good. And the senators who oppose are really trying to score political points. And I think that the Democrats have mostly given up on the idea that they could actually stop her. So what they're trying to do is affect the political climate more generally by raising people's concerns about the impact that her appointment will have on the Supreme Court and on America. So what is that impact? Because she could very well be appointed in the next few days and possibly by election day or soon thereafter be sitting on the bench. Well, yes. Yeah, so one of the immediate things that people have been concerned about is this election is taking place in very unusual circumstances. There's already litigation about various restrictions on voting that states have enacted. Depending on how things go, we might get really dramatic departures from the norm if some state legislatures decide that they're not happy with the way votes are going in their state and they're just going to try to appoint a slate of electors, which might be within their power. So it's possible that the Supreme Court is going to end up deciding cases related to this election or maybe even deciding the election itself. And certainly Donald Trump feels that having Amy Barrett on the Supreme Court is going to help him with that. What are the rules regarding recusal? Because Given, you know, the way it looks for a lot of people, you wonder whether or not she would choose to recuse herself uh, if this issue of the election were to come before her days after she was uh, appointed by the, one of the parties. You do wonder that. The standard for recusal is that 
judges should recuse if there is um, a conflict of interest or the appearance of a conflict of interest. They should avoid the appearance of impropriety. But Supreme Court justices can't be forced to recuse. It's really up to them. Historically, they tend to take a pretty narrow view of the appearance of impropriety. Um, Justice Scalia, for whom Amy Barrett clerked and whom she's mentioned as a, a role model, uh, sort of notoriously scoffed at the idea that his impartiality could be questioned and refused to recuse, even in cases where he had personal connections. Wow. So it's, in your opinion, probably unlikely, uh, given who her mentor was, that she'd recuse herself. I think it's unlikely. And the justices seem to take this much more seriously where there's sort of a financial conflict of interest. So if a justice owns stock in a company that's going to be affected by a decision, they'll do it. They do it much less for personal connections or for ideological commitments. And I think that probably actually makes some sense. You know, the justices have pre-existing ideological or legal views on a lot of these cases. And the fact that they have views about particular issues doesn't necessarily mean that they should recuse. It just means that this is something they've thought about. Now, often they get appointed because of those views. So there is a method by which presidents can try to put people who support them on the bench. Everybody knows that Justice Barrett is um, very much pro-life because of her faith, because she's written on the issue. We've also uh, seen law review articles where she's talking about the Affordable Care Act, but she's given a very scripted response, as you mentioned. Are people rightly concerned that her views could impact uh, the way she chooses to rule on a particular issue? I think absolutely. You know, there's no question that justices' views about the world, their sort of general life experience and legal philosophy, affect the way that they vote. We don't have a constitution that can be interpreted mechanically so that there's one clear right answer and a neutral apolitical judge will reach that result every time. That's just not the way decision-making at the Supreme Court works, even though in these confirmation hearings, justices sometimes try to suggest that it is. Um, and it's pretty clear that Amy Coney Barrett is conservative in her worldview. She's deeply religious. She seems to have a relatively narrow range of experience and exposure to ideas. And I think it's, it's certain that that would affect the way that she judges. I think she's probably a pretty reliable vote to overturn Roe. And you know, the Republicans have been trying to do this for a long time. And they've been consistently disappointed because appointees have turned out to be less conservative than they'd hoped. John Paul Stevens was actually a Republican appointee. David Souter, of course, Sandra Day O'Connor ended up voting to reaffirm Roe, uh, Anthony Kennedy. And, you know, since those disappointments, the Republicans became much more aggressive about making sure that they were getting the right people. They had the slogan, no more suitors. And it's a little bit funny, you know, to see the nominee up there saying, I have an open mind, I haven't prejudged anything, I'm no one's pawn. Um, and comparing that with the rhetoric that the Republicans have been deploying, which is we're going to get the judges who give us the results that we want, and we're not going to make any mistakes on this. And we're going to know, we're going to be very confident that they're going to vote the way that we want before we nominate them. There have been ads. There's a lot of discussion. Uh, people are afraid that same-sex marriage could get reversed. Your thoughts on that? It's possible. I'm not sure that Justice Roberts would want to do that at this point for institutional reasons and possibly political reasons. Reversing a high-profile decision like that just because new justices have come on the court makes the court look bad. 
It makes the court look very political. And that is one of the things that Roberts has tried to avoid. So despite the fact that Roberts voted against same-sex marriage, I think he would not at all be a guaranteed vote to reverse that now. Of course, if it's 6-3, you don't need Roberts. So Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett would be important votes. And one of the interesting things about Amy Coney Barrett, I think, is that my sense of her, at least, is that she's got pretty strong socially conservative views, but they're sincere. So that she has an ideology which takes her in a conservative direction, but she's not politically motivated. She doesn't want to help out the Republican Party. That actually makes her in some ways more radical, I think, because on some issues, same-sex marriage is probably one, abortion is another. It actually would not help the Republican Party to reverse the Supreme Court decisions on those if same-sex marriage becomes a live political issue and people can vote for it or against it. If abortion becomes a political issue where people can vote for or against it, it would actually hurt the Republican Party because the Republican Party now includes people who are in favor of same-sex marriage. It includes people who are pro-choice. And they might defect if in order to preserve the right to choose or in order to protect same-sex marriage, they had to vote Democratic. You have a 6-3 majority conservative court. Does it mean that lawmakers now have to do their job and step up here? Well, that's one possibility. So we have, I think, become maybe a little bit too accustomed to having the Supreme Court articulate and defend the rights of Americans. And that's certainly a role that the court should play, but it's also something that Congress can do. And it's something that state legislatures can do. And it's certainly possible that if we get a court that is more restrictive in its reading of the constitution, we would see a greater need for legislative rights protection. You know, what can Democrats do? I mean, liberals, do they have any, do they have to just accept this now? Is there any tool left in their arsenal outside of stacking the court? Well, that's where I was going to go. I mean, you know, yeah. the obvious thing that, that liberals could do is add justices to the court. Is that a real option, stacking the court? It's been done before we survived. It's been done before for partisan reasons. I, I honestly think it's sort of the natural next step on the path that we're on. And it's a bad path because what we've been seeing is increasing hardball from both sides, willingness to go farther and farther in order to control the court. What the Republicans did with Merrick Garland was pretty extreme, and it would be an extreme response to enlarge the court, but it's the logical next step. You know, the, what we really need to be looking for is an exit ramp from this road of escalating partisan tit for tat. And I've talked about this a lot, but the way to do that is term limits. The way to do that is to give Supreme Court justices term limits so that you don't have these unexpected deaths or these strategic retirements determining which party controls the court. Yeah. And is that something that can be done? Yeah, I think it can. When I talk about term limits, I think probably the majority of law professors support that idea. When I say I think this can be done without a constitutional amendment, I admit I'm in the minority. But the reason for this is there's a sort of straightforward argument, oh, you can't have term limits because the Constitution says judges will hold their offices during good behavior, which means life tenure. The way that we do things now, we've got a federal statute there that says a justice who wishes to retire from active service but still retain the office can take senior status. Then they're not part of the regular nine Supreme Court justices, but they can serve on lower courts of appeals. They can help out at the Supreme Court in various ways. So there's, there's this thing called senior status, mm -hmm. which we have statutorily defined as 
retaining the office, the office of a judge, which is what the Constitution entitles you to. And justices do that now. If you have a system where the next appointment, Congress says, you will serve in regular active duty for 18 years, and then you will take senior status, retaining the office, as our laws say now, it seems to me that that's consistent with the constitutional provision that judges hold the office during good behavior. If you phased it in, it would do a whole lot, I think, to one, reduce the partisan fighting that surrounds every Supreme Court nomination, and two, to make the Supreme Court more responsive to national elections so that the party that is winning national elections ends up controlling the Supreme Court. I mean, there have been four Democratic appointees since 1969 which doesn't really seem fair to me. If you think about us as basically a democratic country where the, the party that gets the most votes is supposed to be in control politically. The fact that the Republicans have had this very outsized influence over the Supreme Court um, when the Republican presidential candidate has won the popular vote only once since 1993, uh, that seems like a problem. And that's another thing that term limits could solve. Republican majority on the Supreme Court pushing policies that favor big business and that favor the wealthy, it's going to be just one more piece of this puzzle. And maybe the worst aspect of that is you can get the Supreme Court also regulating the electoral process. So the Supreme Court is going to give its blessing to voter suppression. It's going to give its blessing to the gerrymanders that I've been describing. And the Supreme Court is going to participate with the other branches of government in locking in minority power. And I think that's a very dangerous future that could lie ahead of us. We're out of time, so we'll have to leave it right there. Penn Law Professor Kermit Roosevelt, thank you for your time. I appreciate you. Thank you. Now we're moving on to the politics of the court. I'd like to bring in Drexel Law Professor and federal courts expert, Lisa Tucker. She's the author of the new book, Hamilton and the Law. Welcome to Flashpoint, Lisa. Thank you so much. It's great to talk about this. President Donald Trump has really reshaped the federal courts. Could you talk mm -hmm. about what that means to the average person? Yeah, so people think about the Supreme Court a lot, and certainly that's very, very important. But what we tend to forget about is that virtually no cases ever make it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Where most cases end up in the federal courts is either at the trial court level or at the appellate court level, which are called the federal um, courts of appeals. And so most cases are being decided before they ever get to those nine justices that we hear about so much. And you're absolutely right that Trump and the Republican Party have really taken their four years seriously in reshaping what those lower courts look like by appointing a lot of very young, and very conservative judges to what are permanent seats. Remember, they hold these jobs for life. 53 of the appellate court seats are now held by these conservative justices. That's quite a, a large percentage. Yeah, and when you say 53, if I'm right, those are only Trump appointees. It doesn't yeah. count the ones that were appointed by other conservative presidents in the past. What we've really seen a rise in is the conservative movement, and particularly a group called the Federalist Society, which is a group of very conservative lawyers, thinking very, very strategically about a long-term plan for changing the law in the United States. And so they have at the ready young lawyers and young judges whom they've been training for years to be prepared when the time comes and the vacancy exists to step right into that seat. 
Amy Coney Barrett is a fantastic example of this. Someone who is a relatively young woman who has followed the conservative path and the doctrine and the ideology all along, and they've had her sitting and ready. She's young, she's smart, she's attractive, she's going to appeal to the masses, and they have the votes to get her through. And this is true on the lower courts as well. What does this really mean for the average person? Because the courts have been a place of solace for people who are minority and who can't get laws changed. They've gone to the court and have got redress. What does this mean for them? Well, what this means is the lower courts have two problems. The first one is that the Supreme Court have, have been making more and more conservative decisions. Let me give you an example, the right to vote. It used to be that in states where there was a history of racial discrimination in the right to vote, states had to clear any change in their voting laws with the Department of Justice to make sure that they weren't discriminating against people of color, particularly African Americans. Seven years ago, the Supreme Court changed that rule. And so now the states, uh, particularly in the South, where there's a history of racial discrimination, have been changing their voting laws in ways that many people feel is very discriminatory. And there are two problems. One, the Supreme Court has said they can do it. And two, the lower courts have to follow what the Supreme Court has said. So if people try to go into, say, a federal trial court, their hands are tied. Similarly, on issues that haven't made it to the Supreme Court, we see many federal judges who again, for, are, for example, against affirmative action, who, who are very pro having restrictions that make it very hard for someone to vote or for somebody to obtain reproductive health care, or for someone to be able to go to a school of their choice, or to have their public schools funded. And because the lower courts are dealing with these issues, and they're not going to make it to the Supreme Court, where the lower courts have so many conservative judges, and these judges are going to be around for a generation, we're going to see a real problem particularly with minority groups being able to access their rights. And so what does this mean politically? Because does, what do Democrats have in their arsenal to combat this? First of all, Democrats need to organize and are in the process of organizing to create a lineup of batters, just like the conservatives did with the Federalist Society. Have people in place who are young, who are brilliant, who are trained and ready to take on these judges. And then if Democrats really want to make a change, they have to win the Senate in this election, because the Senate is in the position of confirming all federal judges, not just Supreme Court justices. We only see the Supreme Court justices, but this confirmation process that's happening with Judge Barrett happens with every federal judge. And so we need the Senate. It's not up to just the president but we need a majority in the Senate. Whoever has a majority in the Senate can do whatever they want. Democrats need to be willing to play by those rules too. How does that impact democracy? Whether or not people actually say, we'll abide by this ruling, does it impact democracy? Sure, I mean, so far, people have been willing to say, okay, the Supreme Court said I have to do X, Y, or Z, so I will. But we're seeing the system is more and more broken. How long is it going to take before there's an uprising and people just say, I don't have to do anything? 
particularly where we have a president who's telling them, you don't have to listen to anybody. And I think the next place where we've got a real tension is going to be in two and a half weeks. We're gonna end up with a close election, possibly a contested election. And who determines the outcome of a contested election? This could very likely go up to that Supreme Court where we have a brand new Justice Barrett and we have two other justices who were appointed by President Trump. And now how can any member of the public feel confident that this Supreme Court is not biased? that it can decide this based on the law and not based on political ideology. I don't know how we can possibly trust that to take place. Is this issue sexy enough to drive people to the polls? Your thoughts on oh, that? Oh, it better be. It better be. I don't know what could be more important in our lifetime. I have four daughters, two daughters and two stepdaughters. And all I can think is that I want them to live in a free society where they have access to live their lives in an empowered way as women. And um, I'm terrified, I'm absolutely terrified. And my last question to you, Lisa, I mean, people don't, you mentioned the issue of lifetime appointments. Ju uh, Justice Barrett is not even 50 years old. She's, yeah. like, she's in her 40s. She's 48. 48! So when you talk about all these young justices, lifetime appointments, how long, I mean, if you think about how long this impact, the impact of what President Trump has done to these courts, how long could it last? Well, here's the thing. I mean, Justice Ginsburg died at 87, right? Justice Stevens retired at 90. Justice Barrett could be on the court for 40 years easily. But then her decisions carry the weight of law. And so it could be two generations. These, these could last for 100 years, the kinds of decisions that she participates in. Wow. And tell us about your book. There are two things I love in life. I love the law and I love musical theater. And Hamilton, the musical, has rocked my world as it has so many other people. So I got uh, a whole bunch of other lawyers and law professors together. And we all talked about the legal themes that we see just below the surface in Hamilton the Musical. What's really fun about the book is that all the essays are nice and short. You can read one in about 10 minutes and they're on all different topics. And if you love to sing along with Hamilton, there's lots to sing along to in the book too. It's on Amazon and it also has its own website, hamiltonandthelawbook.com. Thank you so much, Professor Lisa Tucker for being on Flash. Right, thank you. Next up, 100,000 Philadelphians are out of work in this industry. Every one of us knows a bartender. Everyone knows someone who works at a hotel. State of Philly's hospitality and tourism sector, the plans for recovery. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family. If you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras. One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review now back to the show 
Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Our newsmaker of the week is Philadelphia's hospitality industry. The economic impact of the pandemic on the sector, a staggering $4.1 billion lost, including more than 100,000 tourism and hospitality jobs since March. So what is the state of Philadelphia's hospitality segment? And what's the recovery plan look like? With me to discuss is Jeff Guarancino, CEO of Visit Philadelphia. Jeff, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. So first of all, how's it been? I mean, the pandemic has thrown us all for a loop. And part of your job at Visit Philadelphia, you and your team, you market Philadelphia, its hospitality sector specifically. And that sector has been hit really hard by COVID-19. Could you give people an idea of the impact? 46 million people come to the greater Philadelphia region to come see Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell, to see their friends and family, to come for a big sporting event or an Eagles game or a Phillies game or that great concert. We don't necessarily see those 46 million people, but they're here every single day. They're in our restaurants. They're shopping with us. They're in our hotels. And that's supporting more than 100,000 jobs. Every one of us knows a bartender. Everyone knows someone who works at a hotel. And those are our friends and neighbors who are out of work right now. And 50% of our industry around the world in the travel industry, whether they're a flight attendant, whether they work at TSA at the airport, they're unemployed right now. And so that makes a big impact for everyday Philadelphians because the hospitality industry is an industry that anyone can get a job in. I went to community college before I became, uh, got a chance to go to four-year school and then become president and CEO of Visit Philadelphia. There are people who started at a hotel at the front desk in high school and they're general managers and they're running big hotel complexes. So it's really everyday Philadelphians who are being impacted because travel has been disrupted. There have been regulations and changes to the way the businesses are run and it's impacted this sector more than any other really. Well, we're in the people business. By its very nature, travel is social. And yeah. what's happening now is that people need to be physically distant. We want to have touchless everything. And also it's, you know, you can't go to your restaurants that you loved, right? You can't go to that, the Kimmel Center for that amazing Broadway show. You're not going to the Eagles game. 55,000 fans on an Eagles game they're not all from Philadelphia. You know, they're coming in to, to root for their team and, and to see a great game. We can't do that right now. And that's a major disruption. And that hurts everyone's pocketbook, not just our paychecks. Tourists pay taxes. They pay sales taxes. $346 million goes into the city's general fund every year from hotel taxes and taxes that tourists pay. So when we hear that the city already is short something like $700 million, Half of that is coming from tourism. How are businesses pivoting, Jeff? We've made a lot of progress here in Philly. We have made progress, and I have great news for you. First, Philadelphia is gritty. We love, you love Philadelphians, but we know how to survive. And it has been so impressive to see small business owners and entrepreneurs who are jumping right in and saying, I'll do amazing outdoor dining. I will reconfigure my entire business and I'll do takeout. Like that's our breweries who make all these great craft brewers here. And like, you know what? We're going to do takeout. We've seen festivals who've gone virtual, like Wawa Welcome America. And they're, 
like Philly is July 4th and we're not going to not have a July 4th. We've had it since 1776. They went virtual and had a gazillion people watching. And so I think that talks about our resilience as Philadelphians. Of course, you see the airlines now sanitizing and wiping everything down. I always used to do that myself personally, but you see the hotels, which are saying we're cleaning and we're sanitizing. So I think that the industry has responded to what, to what people need. Now, it's a pandemic. We're in a recession. You have people who are unable to be close in concerts and concert halls or in special events. And you have the festivals of Philly, which just haven't happened. And that's our lifeblood, right? That's our neighborhood festivals. That's people go from Midtown Village to Outfest to Pride Fest to Odunde to parades. And so we just can't do that right now. And I think that that really has created a sense of, of loss for us in Philly. I'm not so sure we'll go back to the way it used to be though. I think what we're gonna do is we're gonna move forward and we're gonna innovate and people are gonna look for something different in their travel experience. And that's gonna take some time. But here's the great news with Philly. Philly is well positioned to recover faster and we're already doing better than other East Coast cities. Right now we're slightly better than New York and Washington and Boston. And look, we want them to recover too, but we want Philly to recover first. And we also want to make sure that, um, that we continue to take advantage of this time where people can discover Philadelphia while they're not traveling to Europe. They're not taking that cruise. Maybe they're not flying somewhere because it's a great town. I think that competitively, we're positioned well in terms of being a great drive destination. People are going to come back here for their meetings and conventions. They're going to come back for Army-Navy. And they're all coming back for those concerts. And we just don't have as far to rebuild as we did, let's say, back in 2001 when 9-11 hit. And that, that's good news. That's good news. And also, um, Visit Philadelphia has launched an effort to make sure that Black and brown businesses are not left out of this big pivot. It's not just the pandemic that's come. We now have had issues of inequality and equity that have been brought to our national attention. We have now had an opportunity to stop and to listen and to understand that it's just not right. And so what can we do as we rebuild? And how do we help small businesses? And how do we help black and brown businesses? And so with Visit Philadelphia, we know that when you travel, where you spend your money, you can make a difference. And it doesn't matter what color you are when you're traveling, your money is green. And so what we're trying to can let people know, it's not just support black owned and brown businesses, we want people to buy black businesses and buy brown businesses, no matter where you are, it's, whether it's a restaurant or a shop, if it's in our commercial corridor. And that's the quickest, easiest way that anyone who cares about equality and equity can make a true difference by going in and spending your hard-earned money at that business and discovering something new. So we're really proud of, of this initiative and because of what's happened and because of the awareness and because of the great inequity that's happened and is in everyone's attention, we're putting money, we're putting marketing, 
We're putting advertising, we're putting our staff, and we're putting our passion behind what can we do to make Philadelphia even greater. This issue, the state of the hospitality industry, will be the subject of a virtual event this week organized by the Center City Proprietors Association. Tell us about it and how can people attend? So this is a free event. And if you're curious about what people are doing to keep Philadelphia vibrant, to get the foot traffic back during the daytime, to promote all the wonderful things that we know and love about this city, whether it's our musical heritage, whether it's our uh, history, everything that we know and love, this is, the, uh, this is the opportunity for you just to listen in. And it's Greg Karen. He's the president and CEO of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau and me having a discussion about what it is that we're doing to bring back those meetings and conventions and what it is we're doing to bring back all those leisure travelers and those family reunions and how are we going to help support the businesses. So I think it's partly civic pride. I think partly we're going to hopefully let you know what the three to four year plan is and it's going to take three to four years. This is not a quick fix and I hope that people leave with one or two or three things that they either did not know or that they can do to be a part of Philly's recovery and actually making Philly even greater than before COVID. What are the details, Jeff? You can come on Wednesday, October 21st. We start our discussion at 10.45 a.m. We go to 12.15. That also includes the free webinar. Zoom in and join us. Wonderful. CenterCityProprietors.org. Thank you so much, Jeff Guarancino, for coming on Flashpoint. Next up, they're raising awareness about domestic violence against men. Boys are often encouraged even more to just kind of accept this physicality. A coalition of groups reaching out to help male victims. We'll be right back. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you are a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KW, we are all about community. And October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and three local organizations have teamed up to host a series of workshops geared toward helping men. Here to talk about their program are our Patriot Home Care Changemakers, Eric Marsh of the Fathering Circle and Toby Frazier of Lutheran Settlement House. Welcome to Flashpoint, gentlemen. Well, thank you, Sherry. Thank you for having us. Yeah, and so I want to talk about this because when people think of domestic violence, they typically think of men as the perpetrators or abusers in the relationships, not the victim. What's the truth here? Yeah, well, I mean, that is definitely part of the truth, that very often men are the people who are causing the harm. And yet we know that one in four men are going to experience domestic violence at some point in their lifetime. 
So we say that one in three women are going to experience domestic violence and one in four men. So the numbers are actually quite similar. Men are experiencing abuse. They're on the receiving end, whether they're in a heterosexual relationship or any type of relationship, really. So for us at Lutheran Settlement House, one of the four domestic violence agencies in the city, when we talk about domestic violence or an abusive relationship, we're really talking about when one partner is being controlled by the other. And that could be done through physical violence, or it could be mental and emotional. Uh, it could just be verbal. There might be financial abuse or just extending um, other types of systemic power, right? Like if uh, my girlfriend was a citizen and I was an undocumented immigrant, she could always be threatening to call ICE on me unless I did X, Y, or Z. That would be a type of abuse because she is controlling me in our relationship. So let's talk about the socialization of men, Eric. A lot of times guys don't want to say that they're the victim of anything, let alone this type of abuse. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's, it's just part of our socialization process, how we supposedly define masculinity, right? And you're not allowed to show any form of victimization or any time of hurt, right? And so oftentimes what happens is we learn at an early age, you're not supposed to put your hands on anybody, but boys are often encouraged even more to just kind of accept this physicality and that if you complain about it too much, you're considered weak or you're considered any other derogatory term. It's a way of us not being allowed to own our own bodies and our own physical space. And so oftentimes men don't think about it that deeply but it really is a concern or a fear out of being perceived as weak. Do men report this and do they feel like they're being abused or is it something that they have to be alerted to? I think everyone has to be alerted to it, men and women specifically. Uh, but we just hear more examples and see more examples of women being abused. And so there's a more of a, a, a realization, I think, for women. For men, again, this physical violence is often part of our upbringing. And it, as Toby mentioned earlier, not all abuse is physical, right? So if you're living with someone that is uh, you know, verbally abusive and just calling you out of your name and cursing and things like that in a way to try to get to control you or manipulate you emotionally, that's a type of abuse. But many men don't see it that way. They just see it as, oh, well, that's just this person being that way, rather than understanding that it really is about a type of power and control. And so you, the groups, uh, Toby, decided to come together and to educate men and the world about this form of abuse. Why? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we have to give a big shout out to our partner in this process, Kevin Brown at People's Emergency Center. He's been doing a program called Men's Coffee for five years now. He and I and Eric started talking about this as an issue that's also impacting men and people who identify with masculinity and really wanting to shine a light on that for Domestic Violence Awareness Month, because so often, right, as you know, the conversation is geared towards uh, women as victims, which is, again, a very real part of the story. And we're not doing this to say that that's not the case. Uh, but because men and male survivors are not talked about that often, uh, we wanted to come together to shine a light on that and also to work with other people in helping professions who are out there 
encountering survivors without even realizing it. And so you've been holding a series of virtual talks. As you mentioned earlier, we've done the first two series, which was DV 101, Domestic Violence 101, which is just an introduction to what domestic violence is or what it could be. The second episode that we just did was on male survivors. We used an example of Mark Hudson, who was a police officer who was experiencing domestic violence and was actually murdered by his, his girlfriend at the time. So we use his story as a case sample of what men often go through and don't realize. But then the other two parts, the segments that we get into are the anger management and conflict resolution understanding anger and how we can manage that. And then finally, uh, the last one we're gonna do is bystander support, understanding how you can support or how you can be a bystander or how you can support those people who are doing the work. Who can participate in that? This is for everybody who identifies as a man in particular. So whether you're a community member, if you think this is happening to you and you wanna just connect with others and maybe stay on the call after to check in, if you are a professional social worker, anything like that, and want some more skills and resources, it's Tuesdays at noon. So we have two more Tuesdays coming up at noon on Zoom. And what has been the community reaction to this so far? We've had an amazing outpouring of, of interest. And it's always interesting to see the people that return each week from the first week to the second week and the, the depths of conversation. Like I said, we have people who are average people from the street, just lay persons, all the way up to folks who are well experienced and actually doing the work and supporting survivors of domestic violence on a daily basis joining us. Learning more and educating ourselves about domestic violence just makes it that much more possible that the person who's in our life that we might not know is experiencing it. It makes it more possible for them to get help and resources that they deserve. We're every Tuesday at noon for the next two weeks now, and it's bit.ly slash menanddv. If you think you're experiencing domestic violence, if you know you are, if you know someone in your life is and you want help and resources, the domestic violence hotline in Philadelphia is free, confidential, 24-7 at 866-723-3014. Check them out. Um, be a part of the conversation. Uh, thank you so much to Toby Frazier and to Eric Marsh for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue. I appreciate you both. Thank you so much. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. And since we always wrap up with a quote, here's one from late Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. We must never forget the only real source of power that we as judges can tap is the respect of the people. This show was produced by Ariane Fulcher and me, your host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Until next week, thanks for listening.